Stefan Pastis is one of my favorite cartoonists. He, uh, he uh, pens a comic strip called Pearls Before Swine. Here's an example of why I like Pastis so much. Uh, just recently we had this one, Welcome to Pigs, Goats Walking By. And the sign says, Welcome to Pigs, Better Living Series. Today's seminar, How to Cope in Difficult Times. The next sign says, A breakthrough therapy consisting of just one step. Hide in a hole. Goat then walks up to the hole and he says to Pig down in the hole, Is that coping? And Pig replies, Is today over yet? Great question. Today can't be over until we complete our study on when life hurts. The Bible has shown us a number of situations the last few weeks where we have seen that life this side of heaven is painful. And we found much better solutions than hiding in a hole, right? We've learned how to engage with God in each of these situations. Romans chapter 5 taught us how to engage with God in the face of affliction, pain, suffering, that is true to everyone this side of heaven. Uh, sections of Job taught us about engaging with God in waiting or loss. Uh, Job also showed us how to engage with God through mistakes. We learned about engaging with God when we're unsure of ourselves from Psalm 139. Ecclesiastes taught us to engage with God in prosperity and in poverty. And Matthew 5 and 10 showed us how to engage with God under persecution. And today we get to develop engagement with God amid cultural decay. Cultural decay. Just say that phrase today and almost everyone nods their heads in agreement. It's one of the few ideas with wide acceptance, the concept that world culture, especially Western civilization, is in decline. Now, full disclosure, I need to say that I think the crisis is often overstated. I want to tell you that by most measures, human life is significantly better today than at any point in human history, and that's fact. Nonetheless, there are serious problems, and the particular problems of our day are the sort that can eat a culture from within. That's what caused the great historian Jacques Barzun, and he really was an excellent thinker, to write his magnum opus just a few years ago, Dawn to Decadence. I highly recommend this book. Barzun's thesis is that the great Western civilization that dawned in the Reformation 500 years ago, that that has stalled into a cultural decadence. The main problem, he says, is that everyone has bought into a bankruptcy uh, sale mentality. You know what a bankruptcy sale is, right? Everything must go, right? That's people's attitude about decay. Everything has to go. Now, Dr. Barzun sees this as a regular pattern throughout history, and he asks this good question. He asks, how does the historian know when decadence has set in? by the open confessions of malaise, by the search in all directions for new faith or faiths. Dozens of cults have lately arisen in the Christian West. To secular minds, the old ideals look outworn or hopeless, and practical aims, this is so true, practical aims are made into creeds sustained by violent acts fighting nuclear power, global warming, and abortion, saving from use the environment with its fauna and flora, bring back the wolf, promoting organic against processed foods, proclaiming disaffection from science and technology. In every town, country, and nation, it is seen that most of what anyone sets out to do for the public good is resisted as soon as it is proposed. The upshot is a floating hostility to things as they are. That is really, really brilliant and I think very accurate. Listen to it again. The upshot, the culture in which you and I live, the upshot is a floating hostility toward things as they are. It inspires the repeated use of the dismissive prefixes, anti and post, anti-art, post-modernism, and the promise to reinvent this or that institution. The hope is that getting rid of what is will by itself generate new life. 
close quote. Everyone's upset by the decadence, but the solutions proposed these days tend to be deconstructive. And of course, that doesn't work. Deconstruction by nature is not constructive. Getting rid of everything doesn't solve anything. Meanwhile, there are real constructive solutions that are, they always work, but they're rarely ever tried. There actually are a number of important steps to take when you face cultural decay, and no one, and I mean no one, has ever embodied this better than this guy, Jeremiah. You and I can find out how to handle the decay of our time by studying the work of a man of God who walked this earth 2,500 years ago. As we stated in our notes, Jeremiah lived a life cast down in rubble. Um, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see that headline, Jeremiah lived a life cast down in rubble. We know more about the personal life of Jeremiah than any other biblical prophet. Do you know that? And yet he's one of the very few where we don't know the meaning of his name, which is, which is kind of rare in Hebrew. The best guess is Yeremiah is a play on, on the Hebrew sounds that mean cast down. Now, if that's so, if that's what his name means, it's particularly appropriate because this poor guy had to oversee the end of his country. He had to oversee the end of all his personal dreams, and he... And he he had to see what he might reasonably have feared was the end of God's promises. But here's what we do know about Jeremiah. First, we know that he has no family. Open your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah is right after Isaiah, just before his great lamentation. Go to chapter 16. Let's read verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry or have sons or daughters in this place. For this is what the Lord says concerning sons and daughters born in this place as well as the mothers who bear them and the fathers who father them in this land. They will die from deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried but will be like manure on the face of the earth. They'll be finished off by sword and famine. Their corpses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the wild animals of the land. The world is about to be so totally disrupted that even the normal rhythms of births and funerals will be completely ignored. God tells his prophet not to marry or father kids because everything is about to face a singularity of destruction. I can personally think of no greater example than this of a life cast down in rubble. Can you imagine things getting so bad there's not even any point in loving or having kids? Look, here's what was happening. Now, no one at the time except God could see this and, and through him, Jeremiah. The one great superpower for 300 years had been this empire, Assyria. Assyria had... Had, uh, had brought a certain stability to the Middle Eastern world. The Assyrians were not nice people. Okay, that's the understatement of the year. They were horribly wicked, cruel people and very, very greedy. But, but they did bring a certain stability, and we see it in the archaeological record. You know, you know, the Assyrian Empire was still expanding when Jeremiah began his ministry, and there's a fascinating thing we find in the, in the records of the bones of that period. People during the last 200 years of the Assyrian Empire lived longer lives than they did before that or after that. But Assyria was crumbling, and it was crumbling from within. Nobody could see it, but it was falling apart from within. And two really old, and when I say old, they were really old back then, two really old empires. The first two empires in world history had risen up again and they were waiting to devour the remains of Assyria. There was a new, uh, new revitalization of Egypt and there was a Neo-Babylonian empire and together they were going to eat Assyria alive and turn the whole world upside down. Jeremiah warns about all this. Nobody can see it but he does and he shares God's plan to protect and to preserve Judah but the people wouldn't listen. 
They bought into the foolishness of a succession of bad leaders. Here's who they were. Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. These last kings of Judah were horrible. Three J's and a Z. Uh, they might be good words for uh, scramble with friends or something, but they're, they're terrible friends to score points with God. These guys were numbskulls, okay? And they refused to listen to God. So as a result, Jeremiah had to watch siege and starvation and humiliation and horror and his city destroyed because the people wouldn't listen. That's why God tells Jeremiah to have no family, cast down in rubble indeed. Here's another example of how bad things were for Jeremiah. By the way, you always do underlined text, right? It was so bad. Thank you for asking. It was so bad that he had no visible success. Look, look over at Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 20. Jeremiah 36, verse 20. Then they came to the king at the courtyard, having deposited the scroll in the chamber, in the chamber of Elishama the scribe. You'll, you'll see what the scroll is in a minute. And reported everything in the hearing of the king. The king sent Yehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the scribe, uh, Yehude then read it in the hearing of the king and all the officials who were standing by the king. Since it was the ninth month, the king was sitting in his winter quarters with a fire burning in front of him. As soon as Yehudai would read the three or four columns, Jehoiakim, the king, would cut the scroll with a scribe's knife and throw the columns into the blazing fire until the entire scroll was consumed by fire in the brazier. As they heard all these words, the king and all his servants did not become terrified or tear their garments, even though Elnathan, uh, Deleah, and Gemariah had urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Then the king demanded Jerahmiel, the king's son, Sareah, the son of Azrael, uh, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord had hidden them. After the king had burned the scroll within, with the words Baruch had written in Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll. And once again, write on it the very words that were on the original scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned. You're to proclaim concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You've burned the scroll saying, why have you written on it? The king of Babylon will certainly come destroy this land, cause it to be without man or beast. Therefore, that's how he said it too, by the way. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on David's throne, and his corpse will be thrown out to be exposed to the heat of day and the frost of night. I will punish him, his descendants, and his officers for their wrongdoing. I will bring on them, on the residents of Jerusalem, on the men of Judah, all the disaster which I warned them about, but they did not listen. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe, and he wrote on it at Jeremiah's dictation all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, Judah's king, had burned in the fire, and many other words like them were added. No visible success. To, to put it mildly, Jeremiah is rejected by the king. And one thing you know about any monarchy of any time period is when you're rejected by the crown, you are not counted as humanly successful. How this must have hurt. Can you imagine? The only reaction to your life work is burning. And personally, I find that last paragraph about rewriting very painful. Have you ever had your computer just blank out and you lose a paper or a document you've been working very, very hard on? Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, don't tell me what you said at the time. I don't want to know. But when you rewrite, it's never exactly the same, is it? I mean, it might be better. It might even have more words, but it's a frustrating and massive task. 
Michael Card has a really great summary about this. Look what he says. The majority of the five kings to whom Jeremiah sought to minister the word of the Lord rejected him. Only the first king, Josiah, seems to have appreciated the prophet at all. And one of the most twisted scenes in the Old Testament, Jehoiakim, warming himself by the winter fire in his palace, takes a penknife and cruelly cuts the scroll concerning Jer- containing Jeremiah's prophecies into small pieces, throwing them one by one into the flames. This would have been enough to cause anyone to lose hope, but not Jeremiah. At the Lord's command, he started all over again, producing a new scroll with the aid of his scribe, Baruch, the only real friend he ever had. Here's the third thing to be understood about Jeremiah. His life was so bad. Oh, good question. Thanks for asking. It was so bad, he writes no happy music. No happy music. Second Chronicles 35, Jeremiah chanted a dirge over Josiah. That's that first good king that he served under. And all the singing men and singing women still speak of Josiah in their dirges to this very day. They established them as a statute for Israel. Indeed, they're written in the dirges. Josiah was one of the greatest leaders ever to live, but not long into Jeremiah's work, Josiah dies. And as if losing that great king wasn't sad enough, it's young Jeremiah who gets tapped on the shoulder to come write the funeral song. It became a greatest hit. It was kept in a book of sad songs called the Dirges, which we do not currently have. Look at this. It wasn't a high priest that the palace called when wonderful King Josiah died in battle. Good old Jeremiah's given that task. Now, he's famous as a prophet, sure, but he's also apparently the best blues singer in Israel, okay? This is particularly bitter. Think about this. Jeremiah appears to be of a priestly line. So think about priests. What do they do? They sing praises to God. They don't only sing dirges, right? But Jeremiah never gets to serve as a priest, and all he ever gets to sing are laments. Lamentations are his only songs. Now, that doesn't mean there's no hope in Jeremiah's songs, right? Even in his great book of Lamentations, when you read that, it's shot through with God's eternal hope and and his promises. You know blues work that way, right? A, A true blues song is decidedly sad, but somehow it gives the listener a, a sense of hope in the lament. Um, here's a 20th century example, Neil Diamond's Song Sung Blue. Song Sung Blue, everybody knows one. Song Sung Blue, every garden grows one. Me and you are subject to the blues now and then, but when you take the blues and make a song, you sing them out again. Sing them out again. Song sung blue, weeping like a willow. Song sung blue, sleeping on my pillow. Funny thing, but you can sing it with a cry in your voice. And before you know, start to feeling good. You simply got no choice. Very nice summary of what the blues do's. Now, imagine if poor Neil Diamond only had that one hit song and he had to sing it over and over and over the rest of his life. That's a little bit like Jeremiah's calling. In fact, I I think Neil Diamond, who, by the way, is a good Jewish cantor, he is a Jewish boy, I think Neil Diamond understood the sadness of singing blues all the time. Notice, look at his song. The only line he doubles in this whole song is sing them out again, right? So that's Jeremiah's situation. Cast down in rubble, singing songs sung blue over and over. Are you depressed yet? Don't be, don't be, because he used his powers for good, even in that mess. You'll see that headline atop the right side of our notes. Right side of our notes. He used his powers for good. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah 19. Go back there and let's start reading at uh, verse four, 14. The very, the very last paragraph of that chapter. Jeremiah 19, 14. Jeremiah came back from Topheth 
where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, stood in the courtyard of the Lord's temple and proclaimed to all the people, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says. I'm about to bring on this city and on all its dependent villages all the disaster that I spoke against it, for they have become obstinate, not obeying my words. Chapter 20. Pasher the priest, son of Immer, and chief official in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. So Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in stocks at the upper Benjamin gate in the Lord's temple. The next day, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call you Pasher, but Megor Misabib, which means terror on every side. For I, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to make you a terror both to yourself and those you love. They will fall by the sword of their enemies before your very eyes. I will hand Judah over to the king of Babylon, and he will deport them to Babylon and put them to the sword. I will give away all the wealth of this city, all its products and valuables. Indeed, I will hand all the treasures of the kings of Judah over to their enemies. They will plunder them, seize them, carry them off to Babylon. As for you, Pasher, and all who live in your house, you will go into captivity. You will go to Babylon. There you will die. There you will be buried, you and all your friends that you prophesied falsely to. Jeremiah stayed on purpose even in his pain. This is, this is absolutely remarkable. And by the way, this has been copied in all kinds of action movies. Jeremiah is the first great action hero. Look, when, when people are beaten, when they're publicly humiliated like this, what, what do they do? They turn tail and run. I mean, it's totally understandable. People give in and they say, okay, your temple, your portico of Solomon, I, I was misguided, your place, right? That, that's what people do. But not Jeremiah. It, in, in your action movies, the hero isn't like most people. The hero is always like Jeremiah. The hero, in his Jason Bourne voice, says, you can't stop me speaking truth, right? You're looking tired, Pamela. Here, here's some more truth for you, right? The hero stays on purpose, even when he's in pain, even when he's beaten black and blue. That's Jeremiah. Now, culturally, we need to understand how big a deal this was. Look, to speak in the temple courtyard was a huge declaration, especially for somebody who was known to hold the office of prophet. I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that it would be very akin to a press conference being called by the United States Secretary of State. That's exactly what this is like. Can you imagine the Secretary of State being put in stocks and beaten in the most public place? That is exactly what it's like when they publicly excoriate Jeremiah here. But Jeremiah comes out of that and he again prophesies at God's command. How hard would that be? This is the guy who just locked you up the day before, had you beaten, and now God wants you to speak again, and this time he wants you to speak against him personally. That takes some guts. By the way, just so you know, Pasher later, much, much later in life, comes begging Jeremiah for help, but it's too late. He can't be helped. Now, get this. If Jeremiah had merely wanted to score political points, he would surely have reached some kind of truce, some kind of compromise with Pasher, right? But Jeremiah stayed on point. He was dedicated to one thing and one thing only, his purpose, which was serving God. And that brings up an a really interesting observation made by one of our elders. Uh, Randall Satchel was, was looking through this study with me, and he wrote me a, a fascinating note. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Randall said this, Wayne, Jeremiah's culture was similar to ours in its morally decayed state. His life and message were undiluted with some murky, nostalgic goal of returning to good old days gone by. 
The goal of the gospel is always to glorify Christ, not to turn back some cultural clock. We were not saved to restore the so-called glories of our culture's past. We were saved to treasure God above anything in the surrounding culture. And, and here's an idea from 2 Corinthians that's really important, and to let our love for him be the aroma that attracts those around us or else repulses them just like Jeremiah, close quote. Now, read through the next thought section, uh, chapter 20. You're at verse 6. Go to verse 7. By the way, this part's written in poetry. The preceding part was in prose. Anytime you're in the Bible and you see the, the type of writing change, you know there's a difference in emphasis, okay? So this is, is going to be a shift in thought. Go to poetry here. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You seized me and prevailed. I am a laughing stock all the time. Everyone ridicules me. For whenever I speak out, I proclaim violence and destruction because the word of the Lord has become for me constant disgrace and derision. If I say, I won't mention his name, speak any longer in his name, his message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it, and I cannot prevail. For I've heard the gossip of many people, terror on every side, reporting, let's report him. Everyone I trusted watches for my fall. Perhaps he'll be deceived so we might prevail against him and take our vengeance on him. But... But the Lord is with me like a violent warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Since they've not succeeded, they will be utterly ashamed in everlasting humiliation that will never be forgotten. Lord of hosts, testing the righteous and seeing the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have presented my case to you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he rescues the life of the needy from the hand of evil people. Probably, stop there, probably from the stress of the previous 24 hours, Jeremiah here turns to God in complaint. As I put it in our notes, he lamented with Yahweh. Now, I need to clear away just a little bit of underbrush here. Some scholars get disturbed by the overtly sexual language in verse 7. There's no need to be squeamish by this. This is actually brilliantly said. The image is used to depict Jeremiah's absolute powerlessness. God did not deceive Jeremiah, not at all. But he did sovereignly choose him, and he did commission him just as he did you, Christian. The prophet can't help but speak, even though it's embarrassing and discouraging when the people around him abuse him for speaking truth. This is a classic picture of lamentation. Just think about this. Have you ever cried late into the night, really late into the night, or been, or been really angry over some unjust situation that hurts you or embarrasses you? If you've ever felt that kind of sorrow, raise your hand. If you ever felt that kind of sorrow, raise your hand. Okay, many of us have. Then, then you likely understand Jeremiah's lamentation. Lamenting with God is really important. Not only is it exemplified in Scripture, folks, it is expressly commanded. And when we engage with God in lamenting, those of you who've cried all night, you, you know this, it generally follows this arc. As we pray, it follows this arc. We start by expressing our fear, our hurt, our anger with God, right? And that inevitably leads to us exposing our grumpiness about God's plan. Your plan stinks. I hate it, right? But then there's, then there's a moment of clarity. There's a memory of God's promises, and that takes us to a memory of God's very character. And then there is the, the idea, the Lord who knows the heart and mind. Then there is always a personal confession of sin. And that leads us to having, it's strange, I don't know how to describe it, but there's just a comfort. There's just a peace about leaving everything in God's hands. And that takes us to a place where we praise God for our rescue, which by the way is not always circumstantial. It's often not physical, but it is always spiritual. All God's people said, amen. 
you'll see all these in Jeremiah 20. I wish we had time to go through each piece, but let me, let me just grab one, okay? Uh, for example, the release of lament snaps him back to what he knows. You see how he goes back to what he knows beyond just what he feels? And look at what he remembers about God's character. He remembers God's character. Look at how he describes him in the text. Violent warrior, tester, taker of perfect holy vengeance, rescuer, right? And that memory of God's character, it changes Jeremiah. It leads him to personal confession and then comfort and then praise. I encourage you to try this yourself. Next time, next time you need to engage with God about the horror of cultural decay that you see around you, okay? Which is a minute by minute experience for many of you on Facebook, okay? When you see the decay around you and it makes you sad and angry and hurt, lament with God. I'll make, you, I'll make you a promise. If you will start here by expressing your fear, hurt, anger, and, and stay engaged, stay engaged with God, I promise, I promise you will end here praising God for his rescue. It's how lament works. How did Jeremiah use his powers for good in a decaying culture? He stayed on purpose, he lamented with God, and thirdly, he shared his life with at least one friend. Listen again, verse we read earlier, chapter 36, verse 32. Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe, and he wrote on it at Jeremiah's dictation all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim viewed as king had burned in the fire, and many other words like them were added. Remember Michael Card's comment on this? He started all over again, producing a new scroll with the aid of his scribe Baruch, the only real friend he ever had. By the way, when I was young, um, one of the knocks against the historicity of the Bible was, was this guy, Barak. Uh, Barak was, was there, there, was no, there was nowhere outside the Bible we could find any extra biblical evidence for Barak. Okay, so follow, follow their silly logic. Liberal scholars reasoned that Barak must have been made up. And since such an important person in Scripture was fictitious, they surmised that, that all or at least great parts of Jeremiah were, were spurious, right? And so then they decided, well, if it's not real, it weighs the same as a duck, therefore it's made of wood, and they wanted to be like Jehoiakim and burn it, all right? That was the thinking. But then, not long ago, a Hebrew University dig that was happening in the Judean Palace area, uh, those of you who've been to Hezekiah's Tunnel, this was found right by the entrance to where you go into that tunnel if you've been to Jerusalem. They found a bulla, this bulla right here, that's a seal that marks important documents. And this one reads, and I quote, belonging to Berchayu, which is Beruch in Hebrew, son of Nerayahu, which is Neriah, the scribe. The silence from the Bible doubters was suddenly deafening, absolutely deafening. Baruch is very real, and he appears to have been a real friend of poor Jeremiah. Now, that's super important to note, because when we already feel isolated from a hostile culture, you know what our natural tendency is, right? We have a natural tendency to withdraw further. It's understandable, but very tragic. I have seen this with my own eyes in a number of, of countries facing severe persecution. Listen. Persecution does not always purify. It doesn't. Sometimes persecution, cultural hostility, can actually just make the Christians more and more withdrawn. It can even make them legalistic. Persecution does not always purify. It can make us withdrawn and even legalistic. That's why it is so important to be boldly vulnerable and share your life with a friend. It's the same story we see with David and with Elijah. When their worlds were crumbling, what did God tell them to do? He told them to bond with a friend. David did so with Jonathan. Elijah did so with Elisha. Jeremiah does so with Barak. How about you? 
Make a friend. Make a friend. They don't need to be perfect. They just need to be committed to God and somewhat committed to you. Your friend may even be as stinky as you are, okay? I know that's hard to believe, but you may find a friend who is just as big a stinker as you, and you need them. You need them more and more as your culture slides into decadence. Now, Jeremiah 29 shows us a fourth thing that made all the difference for God's prophet. Turn over to Jeremiah 29. I know, I'm sorry for all the turning today. You'll get over it. All right, Jeremiah 29. Go to chapter 29. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Here's what Jeremiah did. He prayed a blessing on the land of sojourn. Okay, verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts. Oh, by the way, this is a letter. Uh, We just got a letter. That's what we were singing in Babylon. Because um, Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem or or near Jerusalem, and the, the captives were taken to Babylon, and God gave him another prophecy. But instead of speaking it and then it being written down, this one was written in a letter. Okay, so he sends a letter. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. God says through Jeremiah, don't withdraw. And don't work against that decaying or corrupt country where I've placed you. Listen, God's people must always speak truth to power. We must call sin what it is. But we also must work for the prosperity of our temporary earthly home. And this is not merely an Old Testament idea. The New Testament repeatedly reminds Christians that we are sojourners. We are aliens in a temporary home. For example, look how Peter starts his first letter. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are what, everybody? What are the two words? Elect exiles, fascinating phraseology, of the dispersion, talking about the scattered Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, then go to chapter 2, okay? Chapter later, verse 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Okay, now put these together. You cannot read 1 Peter chapter 1 without realizing that Christians are to be in the world. Jesus prayed for us to be present. He prayed for us not to be removed from the world, and so we are. We live as elect exiles in all of our various temporary homes. But you can't read 1 Peter chapter 2 without realizing we're not to be like the world around us. We are elect exiles. We are called by God to live out His holiness. To paraphrase Romans chapter 12, we're to be in the world but not of it. I like how one of the young men in our college group at church, how he signs every email. The bottom of all his emails say, in, not of. That's pretty good. Jeremiah said to work and pray for the good of the earthly places we call home. Again, that means we don't withdraw, and we don't work against the decaying or corrupt country. God's, yes, God's people have to speak truth to power as ones who are separate in God's holiness, but we also work for the prosperity of our temporary earthly home. All God's people said, amen, may it be so. Now, read the very next verses, very next thought section, uh, verse 8. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they're prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 
spoke hopeful truth. Hopeful truth. This is the final way that Jeremiah used his powers for good in a decaying culture. And by the way, I think hopeful truth is very likely the most important thing for our culture today. You see, the false prophets that they had there in Babylon, they spoke hopefully, but without truth. They said, here, here's what they, they said, oh, nothing painful is going to happen. God doesn't really mean that. He's not going to punish Israel according to Judah, according to the scriptures. No, he, he, he's, that, that was for then, this is for now. What they did was they changed the moral code, and they called that hope somehow. God and Jeremiah say, don't heed that nonsense. Don't heed the false prophets. Now, look, look at how these false prophets are described. This is amazingly brilliant writing. Okay, I'm going I'm to try and show you this because, frankly, it's difficult in English, and few of the English translations actually handle this well. Okay, two words. You see, you see diviners and dream, or in some of your translations, dreamers and dream. They're two different words, but they rhyme in Hebrew. Very, very clever, okay? The first one is a form of halam. Halam is a feminine noun that signifies a dreamer. It's either someone who dreams or, more likely, somebody who interprets a dream. All right? The second word is a form of halam. Halam is a masculine verb, and it means to dream. So you've got halam and halom. All right? Now, get this. Get this. Between them, in the Hebrew text, is a word so rare. It's so rare in Hebrew that if you look it up in a lexicon, it will say, it will say rarely used or unused. That's what it will say. It's an incredibly rare word. It's ata, and it means your. Now, many translators get befuddled here, and they make their English text, when they translate it, read there. But the, but the original your is exactly what God wanted to say. Okay, think this through. What are false prophets? False prophets are dream interpreters who interpret our dreams. Not their dreams, our dreams. These charlatans find out what people want to hear, and then they sprinkle a little religion on it to make it, to make it palatable. They're always popular because they give people back their own bad ideas. For a modern parallel, just think about a, um, a modern successful talk show, okay? Think about the talk shows that you watch. They never, never say anything that is outside the ever-changing mainstream morality of the day. Right? It's always within the mainstream morality of that day. The only time they talk about the things of God are to laugh at God's moral code. What do they do? They give people our own bad ideas back. By the way, they clean them up so they appear all shiny and holy, but they're still the same bad ideas. In my Bible, you elicit. In the Holman Bible, that, that's brilliant. False prophets are always tickling ears. They're saying what people want them to say, what we elicit from them. Unlike them, Jeremiah spoke truth. Now, it was often harsh truth about sins that people like to call respectable. We like to call them respectable, but they're sins. But Jeremiah, with that truth, also spoke hope. Look, if anyone ever speaks without hope, they cannot be speaking for the Lord. <laughs> Do you, you know, in the most excoriating Old Testament prophetic passage, there is always shot through this beautiful thread of hope about God and His character and His promises. Hopeful truth. That's what the world really needs to hear. That's what Jeremiah gave the people. Do we? We should. Because, folks, the world is starving for the hopeful truth that only you can provide. They have truth speakers. They do. They have some. But they're almost always harsh and hopeless. They have people who can promise hope, but that hope is based on lies or delusions that are, that are forged in a warped worldview. By the way, no one laughed. Have none of you seen the tick? Okay, you have homework assignment. Um, this guy is called the terror 
and he speaks truth, but he's horrible. This guy is the tick, and he brings a ridiculous form of hope. They, nobody needs either one of those. You don't want ticks or terror. What they need is you. So I pray that we speak truthfully and with joy because of God's hope. Look, it's simple as this, simple as this. You just say to people the truth, you're drowning. You're drowning. But there's a rescuer. There is a great rescuer who, if you will just call out to him, he saves you, and his name's Jesus. It's as simple as that. Don't lie. Oh, you're okay. Just swim a little harder. You'll make it. No, you won't. But don't say, you deserve to die. No. Of course we all do, but there is a rescuer who loves you. Hopeful truth. Now, for Judah, this prophecy of Jeremiah's was fulfilled in their return under Persia. Do you, you know this, right? When they came back, Persia conquers Babylon uh, about 64 years after uh, Jeremiah saw the people first taken away. Exactly 70 years, 70 years, exactly, after the first deportation went to Babylon, the first group returns under Zerubbabel, just as Jeremiah promised. And by the way, this is all about Judah. Please, please don't take Jeremiah 29, 11 and make it a direct promise to anyone now. It was made to Judah, and it was fulfilled for Judah. Now, the principle still applies. Of course, it applies to Christians today. In our new covenant that we have through Messiah Jesus, we learn the hopeful truth about all the plans God has for us as well. Here, here's how my friend and uh, my pulpit team partner, David Wade, described hopeful truth. Uh, I really like this note. He wrote me and he said, um, Wayne, it makes me think of Noah. This is, this is cool. The flood was honest, accurate judgment. That was truth. But the ark was redemption. Together, they create a picture of God's wrath and his mercy in Jesus. I pray that I will see my own respectable sins as God sees them and turn from them. And I am ever so thankful that Jesus has borne the judgment of God against my sin. He is our living hope, close quote. Do you know that, friends? Jesus is our hopeful truth. He who, he who is God and man died in the place of all who trust him. He took the appropriate, truthful wrath of God that rained on him, that we deserve for sin. And then he rose from the dead so that we might be rescued by faith in him and we might have the hope of everlasting life with him. If you have never trusted Jesus, do so right now as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. I beg you to draw them to you right now. Listen, friend, you're drowning. In your sin, you're drowning, and you know it. The biblical truth is unmistakable. You can pretend all day and call sin respectable, but it's not. But God loves you so much that Jesus, God the Son, died for you, and he rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you could follow him in everlasting life. Trust him right now. There, there's no hocus pocus. There's no pagan formula. Just receive Jesus. Believe on him as your savior. If you just trusted Christ as savior, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. I want to rejoice with you. Good. 
Father, I ask you to bless all of these believers in Christ, new and old. I, I beg you to help us use our powers for good, no matter, no matter how decaying any situation. And I, I, speaking of which, I thank you for the offering we're about to take. I glance up and I see these ushers here, and it reminds me of what a joy it is. Giving my money is certainly a huge step in using my power for good. Bless our gifts, please. Use them to further the work of your church. Thank you, even just this summer, for all the people who've come to faith in Christ, all the lives that have been blessed, including mine. We pray that you continue to, um, to build up your church and to use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.